This podcast is a project of the Mass Cultural Council. We believe in the power of culture, the arts, humanities, and sciences to enrich communities, advance equity, and foster creativity. So diversity in and of itself is just a fact. It's making the commitment to inclusion that leverages the strengths of diversity. Hi, I'm Anita Walker at the Mass Cultural Council, and welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is Sandra Bonici. She is the Senior Diversity Fellow for the American Alliance of Museums, and she's also a diversity and inclusion consultant. And welcome to our program, Sandra. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a topic that I can, with complete certainty, say every single one of the cultural organizations that we interact with, that we support here at the Mass Cultural Council, is focused on and concerned with. We get asked on a regular basis, what can we do more to be inclusive, to diversify our staff, to diversify our board? Uh, The will is there, the ambition is there, the genuine intent is there, but the how and the getting there seems to be really, really difficult. You know, I think think you're right. I think it's... um the how and, and, and whatnot, it is a challenge. I think it's also deeply uncomfortable work. And I think it's long and enduring work that sometimes the benefits aren't seen right away. It's cultural change. Yeah, it's not it's, just it a recipe change. of a list of tactics and do this yep. and ta-da, we're done. Exactly. And I think right now, I think in our country is also, you know, we, we are in sort of a more polarized um state than we've ever been. And I think it, it has heightened the need for this idea of how do we center all voices in our institutions and in the way we do things? And how do we sort of start unpacking a lot of that work? And I like to always think that the work begins with ourselves first. And then, you know, really thinking about, you know, doing our own work of unpacking bias and privilege and understanding big concepts like systemic isms. And and, you know, how they impact us personally. And then from there, moving into what is my sphere of influence within my organization, within my community. And then from there, it kind of ripples out. And there's some strategic process that happens with that. And it's a, also a deeply reflective process. And sometimes that's at odds, particularly for nonprofits, when everything has to be fast and efficient and we don't always have all the time and resources. So it's this 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 tension that has to be held And so I think the work builds momentum over time. I think it's just sometimes leaning into it initially feels a lot harder. And in fact, when you start to implement some of the ideas around inclusivity, it can actually create more hills to climb. It it is hard to challenge, particularly processes that have been seemingly successful right? But then we always have to kind of go back and ask, for whom does this work? For whom does this harm? And then particularly for cultural institutions, for whom do we exist? And those are those are sort of like deep questions. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's that constant, you know, creating a climate of reflection is really hard. I always like to look at what is the low hanging fruit, if you will, of things that you can do that builds that momentum, that builds our our resiliency and ability to stand in discomfort and sort of, you know, try to think about what is our long game on this so that the the immediate bumps in the road don't feel quite so mountainous. So this does really start with individuals, individual people. And as you were saying, finding a way 
to address their own discomfort. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to share a personal story? How did you how did you start in this work? Interestingly enough, um, so just to be very clear, um, I walk in the world as a predominantly white woman. Um, but my father came from a Middle Eastern country, and I'm a first-generation immigrant. And so we landed when I was in high school in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is was at that point in the late 70s. A, a predominantly German and Polish, uh, fairly rural community. So our family kind of blew in. And like my father was like one of those characters that was like a combination of like Zorba the Greek and Henry Kissinger. And so there was nothing subtle about our arrival. And my first week at school, everyone thought I was the foreign exchange student and spoke really slow and loud to me. And then shortly after that, and again, it was without malice, but at the time, the mascot was uh, the Oshkosh West Indians, and they asked if I would be the school mascot. And so there was these like really deeply uncomfortable moments of like, hmm. And I think it was the first time I was really identifying as other. And I think from that moment, I really started growing this idea of like, who do we just gently exclude. And it wasn't anything really tremendously harmful or injurious, but it's all those little um, slights along the way of othering that happens. And I think in looking back where my career has been really focused on creating senses of belonging and inclusion, I think it starts in that place of feeling deeply othered. And so I would say it probably comes from that. And also as a as an immigrant family, there were there were moments of discrimination from my father. Most of my father's family changed their names so that they could get jobs. And so that's always been part of, you know, my personal complex identity. But for the most part, I'm bestowed a lot of privilege because, as we say, I'm white enough. You know, it's interesting, too. Um, so you talked about your own story and your personal mm-hmm. story and where you came from. And when I think about so many of our organizations, especially sort of our, you know, anchor um, museums mm-hmm. and orchestras and theater companies, so much of where they came from is Western European mm-hmm. and white privilege. Mm-hmm. Their collections came from people of wealth or, or conquerors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of the is in the DNA of so many of our organizations. That's tough, isn't it? Well, I think I think in that difficult place is a beautiful opportunity. I think, yes, it's it's a, a challenging history to think about decolonizing your collection. I think what the opportunity is is to look at centering other voices to tell the full story, not to erase what has already been established, but to somehow it's like when you're um, focusing on a, on a camera that you can automat- you can manually adjust the focus, you can shift the way that lens is so that something in the background can come forward and vice versa. And I think that's sort of the metaphysical idea that I, I hold within like art museums or cultural institutions to think about what are the other stories that surrounded this and how do we incorporate that not just in the idea of separate wings or activities and how do we move beyond sort of what I call the food flags and festivals way of addressing other voices and cultures but really kind of like what are those stories what is the art who gets to you know 
determine what is art. And my work is de definitely deeply rooted in deep community engagement. How do we go out into our communities and really understand what are their hopes and aspirations? What are the challenges? What are those stories? And how do we incorporate that all into the stories that we're telling? Because I think that's the beauty of cultural institutions, that we're amazing places of story. And right now, where are those places where people can connect and have dialogue and story and potentially healing as well around so much that's going on in our world right now. So we have this amazing opportunity, this amazing power, and sometimes it's just taking the courage to center other voices and sometimes even think like decentering our own expertise sometimes that there might be different ideas out there that might also have a you know that can ride alongside what has always been. Because we do have professionals in our cultural organization who think and believe that their job is to be the one who knows uh -huh. and to share the information to everybody else. And to re what, what I'm hearing you say is there are other experts. I think there's room for it all. I really do. I think there is that idea of staying in curiosity, of asking those questions again, like, you know, what else is there about this story? Who else, Whose voices are also a part of this story, even if it's a part of a, a painting or a sculpture or a performance? Like, what are all the stories that may have impacted that one story that we're telling? One of our museums, um, the Worcester Art Museum, uh, like so many um, encyclopedic museums, has a gallery where sort of the colonial um, fathers of our mm -hmm. country and some of their wives have, mm -hmm. have their portraits hung. And uh, the labeling next to the, the portraits was this is whoever this was and this is, you know, what where their wealth came from. But they didn't really tell the whole story of where the mm -hmm. wealth came from. And in virtually every case, slavery was part mm -hmm. and parcel of yeah. where the wealth came from. So Tias, uh, the director of the museum, actually um, hired a researcher to dig a little deeper into the rest yeah. of the story and then added a second set of labels mm -hmm. that kind of peeled the layers of the story back to show the ties to slavery and mm -hmm. plantation life that were part and parcel yeah. of who these people mm -hmm. were. I I'm new to Boston, and I've been, of course, like... Uh, going around and, and checking out all the cultural institutions. And what I've been noticing is uh, like this growing sense in um, a lot of the labeling and the storytelling that's happening of acknowledgement, you know, that all this happened at great human cost. You know, what, you know, like I, I think the, one of the most dramatic ones was standing in Faneuil Hall and, you know, thinking about all the things that went into building that. And there was signage that acknowledged that who Peter Faneuil was, how he made his money, and that, you know, we're standing in a place that, you know, came at great human cost. And I thought that's, that opens up a dialogue. You know, and I think it encourages us to lean into some really hard realities, particularly as white people, that we have to acknowledge and that for um, people of color that they have had to live with, you know. So, so we've talked a little bit about 
sort of the programmatic aspect mm-hmm. of how more voices can be centered and reflected in mm-hmm. the, the work that our organizations are doing. But the other question we hear so much is, how do I actually make diverse voices and faces part and parcel of the um, governance structure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and staffing of this organization? And our organizations struggle with that. Yeah, I think I'm sensing they're they're there'll be like sort of a groundswell of change that's going to happen in the way we look at board governance and fundraising. I think the big nugget that st- that stands from what I've been hearing in the way sometimes is a false dichotomy of we want to be diverse, but we need to fundraise. And somehow we are making this assumption that the two are separate entities versus combined you know, ideas. So thinking about who serves on a board and where that decision making is. Now, the evidence suggests that when you have diverse experiences and voices at the table, your decision making is better. So a board's job is decision making and stewardship. And as our climate, you know, like our both, you know, political and environmental climate changes, the ability to have innovative ideas and good decision making at the very top of our institutions is paramount. We have to have that type of of innovation. And it's not just about, you know, are we doing the good thing or the right thing? Are we doing the necessary thing to be sustainable, to be able to keep our doors open, to be able to be thoughtful and relevant to our communities? Those are really deep challenges that express themselves in many ways. And oftentimes, because of the way we are funded, we think about it in terms of who is donating, who who has voice. And I think the reality is I don't want to dismiss wealth and income gap that is part and parcel of structural racism. But I do think that we are assuming that when we are diverse, that we will lose money or donors. And I think that's a false assumption. And I think there's a false dichotomy there. To put a finer point on it, one of the issues that we um, hear our organizations talk about is, should we have a, um, a giving policy to be on the board? Should we set... Mm-hmm an amount that a member has a board member has to give in order to be part of that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think a lot of boards have different strategies and I think many boards are starting to open up that concept. Um, some boards that I've been working with have these wonderful concepts of like a doer, a donor or a door opener. So how, you know, that how to get around that idea of like you know, how much you donate might be in the, the, the form of who can you connect us to. Uh, it might be in the terms of service. I used to always put it in the context context of work, wealth, and wisdom. You know, what is the, you know, the... Time, treasure, and talent. Exactly. We're very good at alliteration in our field. (laughs) We got to make that case quick and fast, right? (laughs) So, um, but I think um, some other structures I've seen is opening up committees Mm -hmm. to have uh, as stepping stones to board service. So um, opening up committees for more community members to have a voice and to, uh, one, both become invested in the institution and give their gifts to the institution, and then as a pipeline to board service. So I think there's a lot of strategies that can, that, that 
museums are doing, you know, and cultural institutions are doing, I think it will will take some time to feel that those things are evidence-based. I think as more and more institutions are sharing their stories of how they're making changes at the board level, I think it will become a body of practice that we can think about. We talk about how it's important that within an organization, a commitment to inclusion must start from the top. Mm -hmm. The top has to be engaged and supportive of that idea. But in our field, a commitment to that should also start at the top. And you are the Senior Diversity Fellow for the American (laughs) Alliance of Museums. And can you talk to us a little bit about how this alliance is thinking about their leadership role, Mm -hmm. they do accredit our museums, uh, around the issues of inclusion? Well, I think... The American Alliance of Museums has been focusing on diversity and equity for a really long time. And sadly, what we haven't seen is as much change um, as we would like. You know, like I think as a populace, I say we would like. And I think it is looking at, you know, where is the change at the top? I think our programs and our staffing has been changing. But when you look at the leadership of museums and then board leadership, there's a lot of studies out that really kind of show that it is still predominantly uh, male and white. And so that presents a challenge. And I will say that AAM has stepped into that brave space of saying, we are embracing and doing this work. Um, They put together a task force to really look at this. And I believe these ideals around diversity, equity, and inclusion are going to be um, folded into accreditation. So trying to encourage this idea that it isn't just this separate thing, but how do we put equity within all of our operational procedures. And so what that looks like then with this Facing Change initiative, the task force identified five insights. And it's those insights and that report is available on, online at, I think, aamfacingchange.org. Uh, and so the, the first insights are really about everyone has to do the personal work of unpacking bias and privilege. Um, And how do you do that? How do you support doing that? And that's a lot of the role of the fellows is helping CEOs and boards do that personal work. I think it's looking at not haggling over definitions of what does it mean to be equitable, inclusive? What does it, you know, what are those definitions? And they have some really nice ones that can be used and they are encouraging people to use those definitions. And then I think it's about how to really commit to inclusion. So all of AAM senior staff are going through personal work in terms of uh, looking at, uh, we've identified using the intercultural development assessment uh, tool as a way to say, here's where I I am on a continuum of cultural competency. And here's my plan then for how to move along that continuum. Because the idea of having the capacity to work across differences is what makes you know, leveraging diversity happen, because we've seen that too often, right? We can put a lot of diverse uh, voices on a team but somehow it doesn't seem to actually still be performing um, as well as we were hoping. So diversity in and of itself is just a fact. It's making the commitment to inclusion that leverages the strengths of diversity. So what does that look like then is really about reviewing policies, uh, reviewing, again, I think some basic questions. 
Who's at the table? Whose voices are centered? Who is harmed? Who is helped by these policies? You know, who are we not reaching? What more can we do? Is that constant reflection? And then really kind of understanding the impacts of policies. And is it, are they really getting us to that place of inclusion? So AAM is doing that work. Uh, the fellows are all working um, with museums that have um, elected to be a part of this first pilot program of Facing Change and doing that work with their boards. And so hopefully, we, uh, you know, by 2021, we will have had some opportunity to really have good data um, anecdotes, understanding, you know, of, of the process of how to get there. And the ideal being that the museums will have inclusion plans for their board, as well as um, encouraging more uh, candidates of color, particularly, uh, to be on, uh, in board service on their boards. And it's slow patient work. It's not um, do these three things and ta-da, we're done. But in the end of the day, I can't imagine a field um, better suited to lead really the rest of society mm -hmm. in ideas and actual practice around um, embracing inclusion. I, I think it's a, it's in our DNA, right? Like our our field is committed to telling the story of our humanity, and inclusion is part of our humanity, right? We all want to belong to something. And the more belonging that we have in all of the communities that we belong to, I think that just creates an opportunity to have that ideal sense of what what it means to be human, what it means to be fully our authentic selves in all aspects of our lives. Sandra Bonici, Senior Diversity Fellow for American Alliance of Museums and Diversity and Inclusion Consultant, another one of our creative minds out loud. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.